And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Tellers Podcast. We always bring you the best guests. Um, some of them have jobs, some of them don't. Some of them just talk about things and some of them do. Uh, but this is Congressman Cheryl. How are you feeling today? You know, um, <laughs> I'm feeling really good. I'm not sure I have a lot of evidence to back that up, but um, <laughs> We've just gotten some great news in New Jersey about some of our infrastructure projects, the Gateway Tunnel project, the Lackawanna Cutoff. I know you guys are following it down in South Carolina really closely. I'm <laughs> sure, I was like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> amazing, amazing work. You guys, exactly. you, know we are, you know what we are following though? Tom Tillis just announced some infrastructure, like a billion dollars for railway between Raleigh, North Carolina and Richmond, Virginia. That's great. Speed, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how the, these Republicans didn't vote for it and take all the credit for it. But that's <laughs> exactly. See, look, my show, yeah, we, uh, we my, show is, my show is kind of unique because we start our guests off with the same question. And I have to ask you this question. We, we get them to walk us through the arc of their career. And you've had a storied military career before becoming a member of Congress. Talk us through the various stops in your career since finishing the Naval, Naval Academy and how that shaped your orientation towards your public service and the work you do now in Congress. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, I uh, had always been really impressed with my grandfather's story. He was a B-24 pilot in World War II. And he, I think, was both incredibly proud of his service to our country and also just loved aviation. Um, so I wanted to follow in his footsteps. I wanted to serve. I wanted to fly. And I told my father, um, and I am saying this to troll some of my Air Force friends, I told my father I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy because he had said that learning to fly was too expensive. You'd have to go into the military and they'd teach you how to do it. So I said, oh, I'll go to the Air Force Academy. He said, um, well, you don't want to go there. That's kind of new. You want to go to one of the academies that have more prestige, like West Point or the Naval Academy. And I said, okay, well, I want to fly. And he said, I think they fly in the Navy. And uh, that conversation was when I was in the fifth grade. And so I cautioned parents, be careful what you tell your children, because I don't think my dad was paying any attention to this conversation. Um, as I recall, he was working on a project, kind of hammering something, and I, and I was talking to him about this. So um, I had decided I wanted to do that. Uh, I went to some Navy games in Annapolis, applied to the Naval Academy, went there and um, got an aviation billet. Um, that was the first class of women that were able to go into combat aircraft and combat ships. Uh, the combat restrictions had been lifted. And to give you a sense of, you know, maybe why I am a Democrat and, and believe strongly that government can act as a force for good and really good policy can actually affect people's lives. Because of that law, because those combat restrictions were lifted, I now have a classmate who just made admiral this past week, who was the first woman to command an aircraft carrier, Amy Bauerschmidt. So um, these kind, you know, laws can really have a huge impact on and individuals and the opportunities that individuals are given. So I completed my time in the Navy as a helicopter pilot and a Russian policy officer, um, and then went on. I, you know, was very concerned about things like torture and rendition and Guantanamo. So went to law school. Um, and as I earnestly told one of my professors who had had a case from Guantanamo, he worked on the Hamdan case, 
that I wanted to go do that. He said, well, first, you really need to learn how to practice law. Um, so I went to a law firm, did that, and then ended up at the U.S. Attorney's Office. But, um, you know, sometimes for those of you who believe in fate, um, this really kind of gives gives some credence to that in my mind. Um, I had wanted to go become a federal prosecutor. I'd worked on some mob cases as a summer intern at the Eastern District of New York. I found it very exciting, um, but they weren't hiring federal prosecutors. So the U.S. attorney said I could um, help with outreach and reentry work, prisoner reentry work. And I think that changed my entire view of the criminal justice system so that when I eventually did become a U.S. attorney, I think it made me a better U.S. attorney, understanding deeply um, how the prison system had impacted people. But at the end of the day, I also think it made me realize that I think the work that I needed to do revolved around criminal justice reform work and had gone on to working to do that. And then the 2016 election happened. And at that time, I decided um, I really needed to run for Congress. Hmm. And so ended up doing that. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, some people did some things after 2016. Some people sulked. Some people cry. Some people I did that too. I did that too. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my hands are not clean. I did all of that. <laughs> like, let, me go, let me go work at an oversized kindergarten. Let, let me go do that. Uh, so two two questions for you. One, it, this is both of them piggyback on your experience. One, one being your uh, Russia policy experience, but the other is something that you just brought up um, in your kind of arc and journey. Why has or why have President after president, particularly Democratic presidents, I'm thinking back to, my, back to my favorite, Barack Obama, say they can they will close Guantanamo Bay and today it's still open. That's a great question. Um, because of my background and now I sit on the House Armed Services Committee, um, you know, I think that uh, that was something that I have looked into. And, and we've put legislation forward to do that. And year after year have not been able to get that. I think. There is a, a sense by many that that the prisoners in Guantanamo um, are so dangerous, they should not be brought on to U.S. soil, which, you know, we have supermax prisons. We have serial murderers. I, I just that does not ring true. Um, there has also been a difficulty in repatriating some of our Guantanamo detainees, um, such as the Uyghurs, for example. We certainly there is a genocide going on in China against the Uyghur people right now. We certainly weren't, I think, probably having difficulty sending um, people back to China, but finding other countries that would repatriate them um, or, or allow them to live there. I think uh, I know several went to Palau. So trying to to do that. Um, and I think, um, you know, we have been, I think, I think even under this administration, a lot of work has been done to shrink the population there to really make sure that only, there's only 30 at last count. Yeah, but um, really, it, it you know, I think when you're looking at the medical needs and how difficult it is to get medical treatment and expensive to Guantanamo, the, the expense of having people there, the expense of keeping up that prison, it, it just... Um, you can argue it from a moral sense, you can argue it from an economic sense, but to me, it makes no sense to keep that prison open. I'm with you 100. percent You you are what I would say, probably the leading voice on foreign policy in the Democratic Party right now. That's not at 1600 Pennsylvania. 
Um, well, or, Tony or, Blinken might. Or, I was going to say, or, or Tony. He might Vince, disagree. Vince's going to be mad too. Okay, <laughs> outside of outside of the cabinet, in the Congress, you definitely are. Um, so help help everyday folks who don't eat and breathe foreign policy understand what's happening in Ukraine right now, and and even more importantly, because this is where I think some people may understand it, but they don't have the follow through. Why should everyday Americans care about what's happening there? I think we are in one of those times in our nation's history where we have these existential fights going on about um, the way forward in the world, who should have power, who should be in charge, um, and how those decisions will impact everyday people. And so when I look at Ukraine, I don't just look at a a small country um, in Europe um, that has a population that wants to be a democracy and is has the you know uh, Russia trying to take over that country. I look at a piece of the larger and broader fight going on um, for the way forward in this world. And why do I say that? Because we have Hamas leaders meeting with Putin. We have Iranian drones being pur- purchased by the Russians and being used in Ukraine. Um, We have, as part of this TikTok, as owned by China, pushing out a a lot of anti-Semitism and and even anti-American rhetoric. Um, We have misinformation from Russia as well going on. We have Hezbollah to the north of Israel um, that is backed by Iran, that is also attacking U.S. military across the world. I think... um, at last count, over 40 attacks across the world. I'm sure it's higher than that now. We have the Houthis getting involved in this. These are these are groups allying against the United States and our allies and against our ideals of freedom of religion, um, protection and support for LGBTQ individuals, women and women's rights, to really live in a pluralistic society where individuals are able to um, to enjoy free speech. You know, I see many of the protests going on in the streets of our country right now. And I think to myself, you know, in many places in the world, that would not be allowed. I'm on the new um, committee in Congress for competition with the Chinese Communist Party. And a woman spoke so eloquently. She said um, a, a Chinese person had come over to the United States and almost immediately, and she said, I don't even remember what the protest was about, but he took part in a protest on the street and he will forever love America because that experience so moved him that he could stand on the streets and protest and no secret police came um, to to end that. He was not thrown in jail. Um, these are values that I think are sacred and I think are the rights that human beings should have across the world and here in the United States. And so when I say we we need to fight in Ukraine for democracy there, we need to make sure we're doing that because in places like China, where the Chinese Communist Party would like to overtake Taiwan, mm-hmm. they are gauging, does the West hold? Do we continue that support or do we fold in a very short period of time? And they are calculating their moves. And then beyond Taiwan, if if Russia takes over Ukraine, They have, um, I think, designs on places like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and other places. So this is an incursion uh, against our values and beliefs. And I would just end by saying, 
if we are not strong here and we don't have a seat at the table for the future of the world, if we are losing ground in Europe, um, in the Middle East, but also in places like Africa and South America, we are going to see a country like China determining how AI, how quantum, how other technologies are used and their vision of how they control their population with surveillance, um, for example, is very, very different from how we envision the future of the world. And so it will impact the very way people here in this country live their lives. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You know, uh, we've had a few guests uh, come on and talk about uh, what happened um, October 7th and forward in Israel. Um, I actually have been to Israel a few times um, and um, have visited some of the kibbutz in the south, namely Starot. And so have a very fond um, uh, relationship and believe that, you know, Israel is an American value. But how do you think this White House has handled this conflict? Um, this war in Gaza, and is there a long-term solution in sight? And what would a solution look like? I believe a solution looks like what Yasser Arafat walked away from um, at Camp David when Bill Clinton was president. Uh, people are like, "What are you talking about, Gray? You were eight. I know. I was like, "But I read books." But still, uh, tell me what you believe and how this administration is handling it, and what does that long-term solution look like? So, you know, this has been a, a really complicated and, and difficult situation, not just sadly um, in Israel, in Gaza, but also I think the reverberations I feel very deeply in my own community, in the Jewish community, in the Palestinian community, um, people who not only have lost loved ones, um, sometimes at horrific rates, whole families in Gaza um, dying almost in an instant but also um, the rise of anti-Semitism here at home has been shocking. And, um, and I think, you know, not just shocking, scary, but, but horrible to those of us who believe so deeply in the values of this country to see those undermined by some of the attacks. It, it's been awful. Um, and so I think as you see going forward, um, Israel, I, I am a supporter that Israel needs to be able to defend itself. We need to say strongly that Israel has a right to exist, and that is a bright line. Um, and I think everyone needs to stand against Hamas. The, the atrocities committed were really unbelievable. And there is, there is, there are laws of war. War is awful, and there are laws of war. There is never, it's never appropriate to rape people. It's never appropriate to behead babies. I mean, there's no, I, I don't, care what is being taught in, in certain areas, there is never a reason to do those horrific atrocities. Um, and I remind people, too, that Hamas, the last time there was election was 2006. Uh, they came to power in an election where they threw their opponents off the top of buildings. So Hamas is a bad actor in the region. At the same time, the casualty rate that is going on right now in Gaza is also unacceptable. 
Um, we have to understand a better path forward. And I know the administration has been pushing Israel to state what the goal is and how they think they are going to achieve this goal. And I think the reason I feel so strongly about this is because we made horrible mistakes in the global war on terrorism. Yes. And it's really hard as the United States to push back on Israel now, because I think there is a sense of, well, how how can you have the moral high ground to say this? And this is why those of us that um, are veterans and were fighting in uniform at during the global war on terrorism were so appalled with some of our actions like Guantanamo, because many of us had done prisoner of war training like myself. And as we were um, you know, being waterboarded or being, you know, hit or or done different, you know, types of torture. We were told this is what foreign governors do. This is what your government will never do. And so to roll back those protections, roll back those beliefs when you are in a time of war, those things are put in place in peacetime so that when you're at a time of war. You have those protections in place that when you want to just go destroy your enemy you have limitations, that you have a thoughtful path forward and you get to a better result. So what is that result? I agree, we need a two-state solution. I, I just don't see a way forward um, without having a two-state solution. And to me, what's missing from these conversations are states like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan. Where is Where are they going to play in this? What is their role going to be? Um, how are we going to get to that two-state solution? I think it has to be in conjunction with those partners because um, I think you'll see, uh, I, I just don't think that Israel or the United States right now has the credibility to be the security guarantor in Gaza. And so who is going to do that as they transition to hopefully a democratically elected government there? Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes we lose um we lose in the fog of, of war, the fact that we must rid ourselves of Hamas. And not all, not all our Palestinian brothers and sisters are Hamas. And that's also necessary to, to uh, be clear on as well. You know, I want to- yeah, Just really quick, I, I want to say too, I, you know, I had a very frank conversation with my Palestinian community um, about what was going on. And, and we spoke and, um, and I said at the end, and I don't know how all of you feel about Hamas. And then I stated my case and they said, we hate Hamas. Yeah, exactly. and, and so I, I do think in some areas of people who want to see a better result for Gaza and are appalled at the, the casualty rate in Gaza also don't quite understand all of what's going on and that the real... Um, harm that Gaza has done. One member of, of my caucus, um, who is a strong supporter of Israel, stood up in caucus one day and said, I don't, you know, I don't think we should forget who the initial victims of Hamas were, the Palestinian people. So I, I do think this has been a little bit lost in some conversations. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. 
So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. You know, one of the things that's amazing to have somebody with your expertise here, because with your military and foreign policy experience, and I even say you're an expert, one issue that I think a lot of people were not paying attention to, although he kind of backed off of it a little bit, but talk about the dangerous game that Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville is playing with our military. Can you explain what's happening and why one senator has this type of power? I can explain what's happening. I, I'm not sure I can do <laughs> yeah. good of a job at explaining why it's happening. Where's I, Chuck Schumer? Where's Chuck when <laughs> yeah, I need him? Like, yeah. I have to tell you, you know, it's it, there's this this story that's told often around the house, and I'm not sure. You know, I really understood it until maybe recent times. I, evidently, a, a young member of Congress went on the floor and lambasted a Republican across the aisle and used some some really personal attacks. And he was called into Tip O'Neill's office and, and Tip O'Neill said, that's not how we do it here. You know, look, you, you can't say those things. And he said, well, they're the enemy. And Tip O'Neill said to him, they're our adversaries. It's the Senate that's the enemy <laughs> to say. I, on occasion, think of that story, and Tuberville is certainly uh, one of the times that I do. So um, we have um, service women and um, service members' families all over the country right now. And many of the service members, when they entered the military, did so under the with the minimal protections of Roe in place. And that's since been lifted. And so when you are uh, uh, a service member, you get orders. And, and I say it that way because they're not suggestions, they're orders. Um, and for example, I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday who said her daughter refuses, she's pregnant, and refuses to travel to Florida or Texas because she's worried about what if she has a miscarriage and the horrible health care she'd get there. And I, it occurred to me that if you are a service member, a service woman, you cannot say, I refuse to go to Texas. In fact, I was stationed at both Pensacola, Florida and Corpus Christi, Texas uh, for flight training. And that's where we do flight training, initial flight training. We don't do it elsewhere. And I, there was no ability for me to say, ah, you know, I'm going to stay in New Jersey. Can you figure something else out? Right. So, um, so we have over, I believe, 140,000 troops in Texas alone. That doesn't include their family members. Um, when I was looking at what it would take for a woman to get an abortion from Corpus Christi, Texas, that te Texas, that's a 10-hour drive. Um, that is why the DOD said, look, because of federal law, we can't perform abortions on our bases. But what we can do is ensure that you have leave and ensure that you have money to travel. Because an E1, I believe, makes about $450 a week. So you can imagine that a plane ticket from Corpus Christi uh, to seek reproductive health care could be over a week's pay um, for young service members. So um, the SECDEF put that in place and Tuberville um, disagreed with it and said, you know, until that was lifted, he was going to put a hold on all um, admiral and general promotions. And um, while we heard from senators, Democratic and Republican senators, that they disagreed with this, it did not seem that any of them really wanted to attack the ability of a, a senator, one senator, 
to do this sort of thing because they could have changed the rules, but they didn't. And so we were estimating, you know, a couple of weeks ago that by the end of the year, three quarters of the admirals and generals um, jobs, they would not have been um, moved into their new jobs. And many of them would have been facing statutory retirement. So, you know, you kept hearing these comments from Tuberville about all these things that were going, that were just not based. In fact, he said, well, they can just stay on statutorily. And, and just to remind Senator Tuberville, you know, Congress passes the laws. These are our statutes. So he should have been able to pull it. Um, Statutorily, these admirals and generals, many of them have had to retire. You're also, you know, I'm looking at classmates of mine. I, I told you I was so happy that he finally lifted it for some weird reason. He said he'll lift it for one, two, and three stars this past week. Three, four stars, the most important admirals and generals that, you know, have the most influence and leadership. He's not going to lift it for. Um, he finally lifted it. So, you know, I look at one of my classmates, um, as I mentioned, who our first um, female CEO of an aircraft carrier has just been promoted this week to admiral. I'm incredibly excited about that. I have another classmate who had a similar career path and decided because he had a young family to get out of the military. And I don't know how many of those people with that wonderful experience who've spent, you know, these are people I graduated in 94. So my classmates have served in our military for decades, have made sacrifices, their families have sacrificed alongside them. And now we're treating them like this because of, you know, I, I really think the senator got himself into a place he didn't understand and then couldn't find a graceful way to back down. So instead of just admitting he was wrong, which he down. finally did with no real explanation of what changed, you know, what changed, um, he just stubbornly clung to this, you know, for months. So I think finally he realized that he was going to really face um, some further pressure. But the fact that it went on that long, the fact that the Republican senators didn't do more um, to to join the Democrats in, in changing this, it, it just was really offensive to me as a service member and knowing how that was impacting um, our admirals and our generals. But but maybe as a mom, I was even more offended for their families who, like I said, you know, your kids don't sign up to serve. They're just sort of born into the service and have to sacrifice alongside you. And, and anything that makes it worse is just um, really awful for parents. Before I let you go, we're running up near the end. I, I've heard rumors and I just I just hang around outside of the outside of where they serve the French fries in the Rutledge building up there. But I heard rumors of, <laughs> of running for governor of New Jersey in 2025. Is there any chance you want to make news here? And why on earth would you want to leave working with Matt Gates and Lauren Barbert to go to the governor's <laughs> mansion? Who, who thinks like that? Right. Like what, you know, what could be better? Um, well, right now I am incredibly focused on 24 um, that and I'm running for Congress. I um, I think that Democrats have the opportunity to take back the majority in the House of Representatives. And I have to assume that after people across the country have have had the um, ability to watch this this last year of what the Republican majority looks like, I have to assume that that is a, a hope widely held by the American people that Democrats will be back in the majority in 24. And that's what, what I'm focused on right now. Well, that was a good answer. 
I'm focused. And you, next next time somebody asks, you got to say, I'm focused on that and, and my constituents back at home. That's what every politician says, right? <laughs> oh, man. You're, oh, you're trying to make me a cliche. Ouch. Oh, this is a good answer. And then you announce like tomorrow and it'll be, uh, it'll be <laughs> no. How can people follow you and keep up with you? You're one of the dopest, most amazing and thoughtful members of the United States Congress. And how can people keep up with you? Oh, thank you so much. Well, you can, I have, um, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and then um, we're doing a town hall actually um, on Monday. So a teletown hall. So if people are interested in that, please reach out to my office. I appreciate you. And I want to say thank you, Congressman, for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I hope you have a very, very blessed day, a happy holiday season, and I hope your family enjoys it as well. Well, you too. And thank you again for having me. I really appreciate it.